Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Today's reading comes from Scripture, uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52, uh, would be in your pew Bibles, page 702, if you'd like to follow along. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth and with them and was obedient to them. But his mother assured all these things in her, treasured all these things in her heart. And as Jesus grew up, he increased his wisdom and in favor with God and people. Here ends the reading. Good morning. It's great to see all of you who braved the cold this morning. And for those of you who are sitting on your couch watching the live stream, you are welcome too. Uh, We're glad you're joining us. Uh, Here we are in 2022, right? In fact, my wife pointed this out yesterday. If you have a bulletin, if you're in the sanctuary and you have a bulletin, I want you to look at the very front of the bulletin. And uh, on the front there, notice the date. It says January 2nd, 2021. This is what happens when you put me in charge of quality control. So, uh, <laughs> so if you want, you can cross that out and put 22 on there if it makes you feel better. Or probably, if you still write checks, you're probably going to do that a time or two yet. We'll get used to it. You know, what's interesting about I was thinking about it as the, uh, as the calendar turned, that it seemed like it was just uh, a few days ago that we were ready for 2020 to be over, right? As if, you know, when we change the calendar, everything would be okay. And it's funny because 2022 seems pretty similar to 2020, if you ask me. So, but, uh, but it'll be okay. And, and here's the reason why, is because Jesus is still risen and God is still on the throne. And so what could matter beyond that? All right, so let's keep that in mind no matter what happens this next week. Well, I hope that you have had a, a good Christmas celebration and New Year's celebration, and, uh, and you're ready to get back into the routine of life. I know I've talked with a number of people about this. I feel like I get to be just about worthless this time of year, uh, just because, I don't know, I, I really like the holidays, and it's hard for me to really buckle down and, and work hard and, and all of that, uh, but it's a good time, actually, for us to slow down, take some time to reflect, 
to worship, to celebrate, to be with family and all of that. You know, there's time for work and all of that, and and I certainly did that this week, Uh, but it's really hard to get motivated around this time. And and, and I feel like even as a church, like uh, I think about when uh, when Jesus at at the ascension, at the the end of, or actually at the beginning of of the book of Acts, and we'll get to that in a few months, where uh, all of the disciples are standing around and Jesus has just gone to heaven, and the angel looks at the people and saying, hey, why are you, what are you doing standing there staring at the sky? You've got work to do, basically. And, and uh, so it's kind of like that. That's kind of how I feel. Not just in this season, but even after these last couple of months. And so as we get started today, I just want to remind you of something that is really important to me and I think important for us as a church. On January 23rd, we're going to do what we call an all-church huddle. And uh, it'll start with a potluck, but then it'll be a time where we get together and we talk about kind of what's happening going forward. And in fact, what we're going to start by talking about what's happened over the last couple of years, because I think it's, it's really hard, especially, you know, in my mind, I feel like, you know, we've still been doing ministry in that, but as a church, I feel like we're all kind of scattered and doing our own individual things. And, and it's time sort of to come back together. And so the reason we're calling it a huddle is really because of football. And I know that not all of you are football fans, but I think you probably know enough to know that a huddle is the time when all the players come together, they get in a circle, and they talk about their plan going forward. They say, we're all going to get on the same page here. And that's how I sort of envision January 23rd. So what we'll do is we'll have a regular worship service on January 23rd. Afterwards, we'll have a potluck together. Hopefully, COVID behaves itself a little bit. Uh, but we, we still want to come together and... Um, and, uh, and just get together uh, to sort of regroup, to huddle up, and, and talk about the ministry that we have going forward. Because, you know, people are still lost, and people are still hurting, and we still have a mission to accomplish. Uh, and so I know that we, while we've been feeling the effects of COVID and all the other stuff that's been going on over the last couple of years, uh, we still, as a church, like every other church, have a mission that we've been given by God. We have a calling that he's given us to accomplish. And we want to get together and to talk about how we're going to do that, sort of regroup and do that again. So I hope that you, uh, uh, that you set aside time to, to do that on that day. If you have surgery scheduled for that day, cancel it. If you, uh, no, I know the Vikings aren't going to be doing anything on that day, so you don't have to worry about that game. No, I'm sorry, I had to do. It's, it's very late in the season, so anyway. Okay, anyway, I think you get the idea. Mark it off on your calendars. We'd love to have you there. All right, so getting into the message now. Uh, let me start with a little bit of Bible trivia for you, okay? Here's a question. Which writer is the largest contributor to the New Testament? Which writer is the largest contributor to the New Testament? What? Paul? Okay. I thought you were going to say, actually, it's the Holy Spirit, right? Ah, no. Okay, so I could change it. Which, which, human, which human writer is the largest contributor to the New Testament? Actually, chapters and words. It's Luke. It's Luke, yeah. I don't know if you really, you know, we think about, I, you know, when you think about who wrote most of the, uh, of the New Testament, we automatically think about Paul. And if you're thinking about the number of books that he wrote, that would certainly be true. He wrote a lot of books in the New Testament, but some of them tend to be very short. But 
the writer Luke, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the one who actually wrote more because he wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And you might say that Luke Acts, and, and a lot of scholars put them together as one book because Acts is a continuation of the book of Luke. And so they consider it to be kind of a, a 52 chapter epic about the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, as well as the introduction of the Holy Spirit and the story of how the Holy Spirit empowered the church to do the work that it was called to do. And, and what makes Luke's gospel Gospel unique among all the other Gospels is that it continues the story after the resurrection, uh, while uh, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, end with Jesus' resurrection. Luke just, just keeps right on going. And, and so what he says is, is that the good news is not just the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but it's also the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the work of the church that went on after that. And it's, and it's pretty amazing when you think about it. And uh, so Luke continues to talk about the power of the gospel, the power that the gospel has to change people's lives and to change the, the world. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about. We're actually going to spend the next number of months, and I tried to time it out so that we're going to, you know, we of course started with Luke when we uh, talked, when we went through Advent because he tells the Christmas story, he also tells the Easter story, and so we're going to time it out so when we get to Easter, we can talk about Easter from the book of Luke as well. We'll do some parables after that, and then we'll go right on to the book of Acts, and we'll just go right all the way through the 52-chapter epic there. But before we get into the particular passage for today, there's something that I want to do, as I do whenever I introduce a book, is to just give you a little bit of an outline or a, a, a little bit of a, an idea about what we're going to be looking at. You see, we have four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one of them, while telling common stories about Jesus, actually have a little bit different of a perspective. Of course, this bothers some people. They say, well, are they contradicting each other? Why don't we just have the same story? Why can't we get the story straight? But actually, I've never really thought about it that way. I've thought, well, this is just the way life is. When, when people hear stories, when you read stories, we see it from a different perspective and we emphasize different things. And each one of the gospel writers emphasized something different about the life of Jesus. Um, and, uh, and so each one of them has their own particular style. They each one have their own particular interests. For instance, John wrote in a very Greek philosophical style. And, uh, and so that's kind of his, his deal. And he has his own themes. Mark is short and to the point as if to, to say, uh, who was the, uh, was it Dragnet, Sergeant Friday, just the facts man? Okay, that's kind of what, what Mark was like. Uh, he, he just kept it short and to the point. Matthew is the one who's most interested, most interested in showing how how Jesus is the one who fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And so all through the book of Matthew, you'll see quotes and allusions back to the Old Testament. And that's something that he was really interested in doing. In the same way, Luke also has some particular interests. And as you follow along, you'll understand Luke better if you have some idea of the overall interests or the, or the themes that come up in Luke's gospel. And so to do that, I want to show you today some prominent features of the book of Luke that oftentimes continue into the book of Acts as well. And these are, are things that are pointed out by the historian, by the Christian historian, Husto Gonzalez. All right? So we're going to talk about four different 
different themes uh, that Luke hits on. And so as you follow along and as you read, look for these things that, uh, that Luke pays particular attention to. Okay? The first is one that we've already talked about during Advent, one that we call the Great Reversal. Uh, and this is something that it, you see it in the other Gospels as well, but this is especially prominent in the book of Luke. Um, and, and we saw it particularly in Mary's Magnificat, uh, where she talks about this both great social and financial reversal, where, where she says this in, in chapter 1, verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And you'll see this theme come over, over and over and over in the Gospel of Luke. And I understand that this kind of talk makes a lot of Christians very nervous. Uh, anytime you talk about financial sort of things, uh, it makes, them, makes us uncomfortable because it doesn't sound very uh, spiritual. But it's actually a consistent theme throughout Luke. And we see this all over the place. For instance, in the Christmas story, Luke subtly points out that while Caesar Augustus thought he was in charge, it was actually God who was pulling the strings, um, setting his motion in plan to save the world by sending a little baby to a poor couple from the sticks, who eventually became king of kings and lord of lords. That's a, that's a pretty great reversal in itself. But even Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, he walks into the synagogue. And what does he do as he's introducing his ministry? He pulls open the scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 61. And, and he says that his ministry is going to be good news to the, to the poor, to the oppressed, and the forgotten. This is what he reads. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, the coming of Jesus is good news because it signals a reversal of fortune for people who believe that God has forgotten about them. Okay, but there's also a great spiritual reversal as well. And this is one that's not unique to Luke, but it's one that is also very prominent there and consistent. Uh, for instance, the first will be last and the last will be first. Uh, Jesus says in, in Luke 14, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's not the way the world works, but that's the way the kingdom of God works. He also says to his followers, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, it's kind of a reversal of how we are, have been taught to live by the people around us. And right after Jesus celebrates the Last Supper with his disciples, this is what he tells them. He says, The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Okay, so you start to see these reversals that are happening, that there's this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And the point of the reversal is that faith in God has to do with trust that God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so we, we trust him. If we refuse to exalt ourselves, eventually God will exalt us. He will glorify us. Okay, and so keep your eyes open for the, that reversal theme that we see in the book, book of Luke. Uh, another theme to watch is how Luke portrays the role of women 
uh, in the kingdom and in the church. Now, of course, we all know during that time that women held very, very little power uh, in, in, or influence in Jesus' day. I mean, if, if we think there's a gender gap today, she should have tried to live a couple thousand years ago. There was a serious gender gap at that time. But Luke does something unique, um, or at least he points out that Jesus does something unique when he values women and lifts their status among his followers. And again, this happens right from the beginning of the story. For instance, uh, in Luke's telling of the Christmas story, Mary and Elizabeth are actually more important than Joseph and Zechariah. At the end of Luke, the first people to hear about the resurrection of Jesus were women. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, women and men receive the Holy Spirit and start to announce the gospel. Acts 8, 1 through 3 tells us that it was wealthy women like Lydia who, who financed the early church. Um, and Luke has an interesting habit, and this is not something that I'd noticed before, but Houston Gonzalez pointed this out to me. He said that Luke has an interesting habit of coupling a story or a parable of a man with one of a woman. And so, for instance, in Luke chapter 2, he tells the story of Simeon uh, after Jesus is born and then tells the story of Anna. And in chapter 4, when he heals a man, he immediately then heals a woman. The parable of the Good Samaritan is followed by the story of Mary and Martha. In two parables, in chapter 13, he tells the parable about a man who sows some seeds and then a woman who uh, adds some yeast to dough. A shepherd loses a sheep, a woman loses a coin. Because women play a prominent role in Luke's story. And that's something that you can kind of keep your eyes open for. Um, and many of you will really like this one. In, in Luke, there's a prominent theme of eating and drinking. Okay? Uh, it's probably my favorite theme in the book of Luke, right? Uh, Jesus is continually attending banquets. Okay? That's something that you're going to notice. Eating with anyone who will invite him. And actually, that's something that's pretty significant because we might not think twice about this. Like, we'll tend, uh, attend a work luncheon with people that we don't like or people who are kind of shady characters. We maybe won't invite them over to, uh, to dinner at our house or something, but sometimes we'll end up eating with people that we don't particularly like. But, you know, you've probably heard the phrase today, you are what you eat. Well, in Jesus' day, the phrase would have been more like you are what, who you eat with. And, uh, and so this act might actually be another example of the great reversal because we find that Jesus will eat with anyone. He'll eat with Pharisees and he challenges them on their hypocrisy, but he also eats with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and tells them that God has not given up on him and he teaches people that when they throw a party, they shouldn't just invite their friends or the people who can help them socially, can boost their social status, but instead, he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And Gonzalez says that Luke's focus on eating, drink, eating and drinking is actually for a number of reasons. He says, first of all, that, it's, that eating and drinking was probably the most significant indicator of social status. Again, you are who you eat with. And, uh, and it's uh, another example, again, of this great reversal theme. Another reason is that Jesus actually formed a community whose primary act of worship is a meal. Uh, we regularly partic participate in the Lord's Supper as our central act of worship. Not only that, but eternity itself is described as a great banquet where people from all around the world, from all walks of life, will come together and that's where the great reversal will be fulfilled. 
Uh, But mostly, he says, because eating and drinking is associated with joy. And Luke sees the the news of Jesus' coming as a reason to celebrate. And, uh, And so he portrays Jesus not as a somber and stoic religious character, but as a man who is filled with joy because he's living under the rule of God, which is good news for all the people like we learned on Christmas Eve. Finally... Uh, another very prominent theme, one that is even more so in Luke than it is in the other Gospels, is the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit plays a more prominent role in the book of Luke and Acts than in any of the other Gospels. For instance, Mark mentions the Holy Spirit six times, Luke men- or, uh, Matthew mentions the Holy Spirit 12 times, the Gospel of Luke mentions the Holy Spirit 17 times, and of course, the, uh, the uh, Acts mentions the Holy Spirit 57 times. In fact, you could say that the Holy Spirit is actually the main character of the book of Acts, even beyond that of all of the apostles. You see, Jesus' ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and when he leaves, the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what God had called them to do, what Jesus had called us to do. And so maybe the most crucial thing that we can learn from our study of Luke and Acts is uh, to internalize this idea that the Holy Spirit is always working in us. The Holy Spirit is the power behind everything that we do, and so I hope that that's a theme that you pick up greatly, both in the, when we study the Gospel of Luke, but also especially when we get to the book of Acts. All right, so those are some things to look for as you follow along over the next few months, and I hope that you see them very clearly and, uh, and that. But we have a, a passage that we're going to look at today, a particular one. Uh, in, your time, in the time that we have left today, I want to look at the passage that Arnold read earlier from Luke chapter 2, verses, he, he started at verse 41, actually I, probably the passage starts at verse 40, I know the NIV breaks it up a little differently than that, but we'll talk about why uh, a little bit later. Uh, but, you know, there's not a whole lot that is said about Jesus' life before his public ministry. And and in some ways, it's kind of weird to think about, and I don't know how much time you've spent thinking about what Jesus was like as a boy. Uh, Just like, you know, we we probably know that Christmas song, Mary Did You Know, that kind of wonders what Mary knew about Jesus. I mean, she knew that he was going to be the Messiah, but I think just like everybody else, he didn't She didn't really know everything that that entailed. But we can ask those same questions about Jesus himself. And this is something that Bible scholars and theologians have speculated about since the very beginning. When Jesus knew who he was, or knew that everything about who he was. Now, obviously, Mary and Joseph knew that because they had angels that told them that Jesus was the promised Messiah, uh, but they didn't really necessarily know what that meant. But what about Jesus? How much did he know? And at what point did he really understand exactly who he was, that he was God in the flesh? Ever thought about that? Ever thought about what was Jesus like as a kid? Um, you know, there's actually an apocryphal book called The Infancy Gospel of Thomas that claims to be about Jesus' childhood. And it's a pretty interesting book, actually. If you want to look it up sometime, you can Google it and, uh, and you can just read right from it. Uh, but uh, 
But one story that it tells right at the beginning is a story from when Jesus was five years old. He was out playing with other kids in a stream. And at one point, Jesus started to gather little pools of water. And just with his, by speaking it into existence, he made them clean. He purified the water. And so there are all these pools in the stream of purified water. And then he took some of the clay from those pools, some of the dirt from those pools, and he fashioned uh, 12 sparrows out of them. And of course, all the other kids were were amazed and, and all of that. If you were another kid, you would be pretty amazed with that too. But there was a problem. Jesus did all of this on the Sabbath. And so when his father Joseph saw him doing all of this, he reprimanded. He said, Jesus, why are you doing this on the Sabbath? Don't you know that doing all of this stuff is against the law of Moses? And Jesus responds by clapping his hands, and then the sparrows fly away. Uh, and, uh, and, and one of the other kids were there, and one of the other kids was actually the son of one of the Jewish scribes. And he was apparently one of those self-righteous goody-two-shoes who you know, was eager to turn him in and he was absolutely appalled at what Jesus was doing on the Sabbath and and so what he did was he took a branch and he wiped out all of the clean pools and uh and, and, and this made Jesus pretty mad. And so he said to this other boy, he said, you evil, ungodly, foolish boy, what did those pools ever do to you? And, uh, and then he cursed the boy and the boy withered up like a dead tree and then Jesus went home. And of course, the boy's parents were pretty mad about this and so they went and they, they went and confronted Joseph and uh, told, Joseph, told Jesus to stop tormenting people like that. And so Jesus agreed right after he struck all of the naysayers with blindness. And uh, so, so needless to say, the infancy gospel of Thomas did not make it into the Bible. Uh, but, uh, but what you can see is, is that right from the beginning, people have speculated what Jesus was like when he was a little kid. And, and one of the things that we see is, of course, this story is so out of character for Jesus that, uh, that you know, we know that it, it's not a, a true thing, okay? But it, but it shows us that people have always been fascinated with the childhood of Jesus. Now, for our passage today, outside of the nativity story, this is the only story that we have about Jesus' childhood. Mary and Joseph were devout and faithful Jewish people. Uh, They lived in Galilee, but every year they would make the the three-day journey down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, men were commanded to do this. Women were not necessarily, but it seems like Mary went down anyway, and this kind of shows you how devout they were, how faithful they were to, to their faith. Uh, this next story takes place, though, when Jesus was about 12 years old. And, and the family goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But part of the way home, uh, they realize that Jesus is missing. Now, at, at first blush, you might wonder, well, what kind of parents lose their 12-year-old son for an entire day? Like, it was a day before they even noticed that he was gone. Well, have you ever seen the movie Home Alone? We talked about that as Christmas, Christmas movies. Uh, 
Okay, now think about that as what was happening there, okay? The, the movie actually does a great job of portraying the chaos of trying to move a large group of people from one place to another and how some pretty important details can oftentimes get lost in the middle. You know, so Mary and Joseph would probably have been traveling with a very large group of people, probably a lot of relatives, and they did that for safety because some of the roads between Galilee and Jerusalem were pretty dangerous, and so they would travel in large groups of people, large groups of, of relatives, relatives. And scholars tell us that during the time of the Passover, the city of Jerusalem would swell from about a population of about 30,000 to actually hundreds of thousands. Actually, one person, one uh, historian says around 2 million people, but I think a lot of people say that's a bit of an exaggeration. But it, it was not uncommon for it to grow by 10 times. And so you can imagine that it was a pretty hectic, chaotic environment when they got there for the, the Passover. Uh, just like the family in Home Alone. You know, there was a lot of stuff going on, and so it would be pretty easy to, uh, to lose some. And so you can imagine you know, Mary on the way home about a day later looking and thinking, Jesus! You know, they cut to the, the face of the mom there, Jesus! Well, Mary and Joseph then, once they realize that Jesus is gone, they go back to Jerusalem and they look for him. And can you imagine what would have been going through Mary's mind as she's looking? First of all, probably panic because she's lost her son. And then probably something like, I can't believe I lost the Messiah. You know, you know God, God should never have trusted me with this, right? <laughs> well, they look around and finally they find him in the temple. Fending off bad guys with paint cans and marbles, of course. And no, he's actually in the temple and what is he doing? He's sitting at the feet of the Jewish leaders. Even at 12 years of age, they were astonished by the questions that he asked. They were astonished by the, his understanding of God. And, and so clearly, just like the birth stories in the book of Luke, uh, the one thing that Luke is trying to point out here is that right from an early age, there was something special about Jesus, even at 12 years old. Uh, you know, even in Jesus' day, 12-year-olds were not rushing to the feet of rabbis to learn the law. And yet, that's exactly where Jesus was. You know, if he had time away from his family, this is what he did. Jesus was extraordinary. And this is part of Luke giving evidence that Jesus was not just any normal human being. That there was something special about him. And in fact, Luke's original readers wouldn't have known at the beginning of the story, of course, what was going to happen at the end. And so they're like soaking this up and going, hmm, I wonder why is it that Jesus is doing this? What is it that's special about Jesus? Now, of course, we know the end of the story. We know the reason is, is that Jesus was God in the flesh, right? But they would not have known that at the time. And so Luke is building his case that there's something special about Jesus, but there's also something else that I want you to see here. And it's this, is that this passage is framed by two verses. One is verse 40 and the other is verse 52. And here's what they say. Verse 40 says this, And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. And then at the end of the passage in verse 52, at the end of the story, Luke follows it up with this, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. Now, while it's really important for us to understand the uniqueness of Jesus, because he was God in the flesh, Luke is also pointing out the other side of the coin, that Jesus is also thoroughly human. 
Okay, now, again, theologians have wrestled with this from the beginning. What does this mean? Okay, think about the, the various characteristics that we attribute to God. God is omnipotent, right, meaning he's all-powerful. God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything that there is to know. God is omnipresent. In other words, God is everywhere, all at once. And somehow, none of that seems to apply to Jesus, So you see, Luke points out that Jesus was in the temple, but he wasn't doing all the teaching. Yes, he had extraordinary insight, but he was also asking questions, and he was gaining knowledge. And Luke says he grew in wisdom, right? How does an omniscient God grow in wisdom? And uh, there's a tension of Jesus that we have there, fully human, fully God. Okay, but what does this mean for us? You know, this is a a great theological concept of of the church. Jesus is 100% God, 100% human. But is this just some kind of an interesting, or maybe if you're not into theology, not so interesting, abstract doctrine about Jesus? Or does it actually have a tie to everyday life? Well, I would say the second. I would say that it has a great tie to everyday life. You see, when we study Jesus... We learn a lot. First, because Jesus is fully God, we learn who God is and what God cares about. So over the next few months, we're going to be looking directly at Jesus. Everything in Luke is all about Jesus. And uh, and so pay particular attention to how Jesus sees the world around him. Pay particular attention to how Jesus views the people around him, what he cares about, what he prioritizes. Because when we know Uh, what Jesus cares about, then we know what God cares about. Because when we look at Jesus, we see God. And then we can orient ourselves to that. And the second part is, is that because Jesus was fully human, when we see him, we see a picture of what we were created to be as human beings. Now, of course, we have to sort through a few things about what that means. For instance, Jesus wore a tunic and sandals. So does that mean that we all need to change our wardrobe? I don't think so. But there are lots of ways in which we are called to be just like Jesus because Jesus is the perfect human. He is what we were intended to be. And so we want to pattern our lives after Jesus. And so that's why we study Jesus. Okay. In fact, the highlight of this whole passage is this part, uh, is Jesus' answer when Mary and Joseph say, Hey, what are you doing? Why didn't you stay with us? What did he say? He said, Don't you know? that I needed to be in my father's house. See, Luke is clearly showing that Jesus is extraordinary, that he's God in the flesh, that even while he is God in the flesh, he still has to be connected to his father. He still has to be intentional about it. He still had to learn and grow. Uh, if Jesus had to be intentional about learning and growing in wisdom and in knowledge and insight, then it seems like maybe that would be a good thing for us as well. If Jesus had to study the scriptures and sit at the feet of a rabbi, if Jesus had to be about his father's business, how much more does that apply to each one of us? In fact, I don't think any one of us is ever done growing in knowledge or wisdom or insight. Okay? And so, if you're young and you're frustrated because of how little you think you know, don't be, because it's part of the process. 
Okay, growth is part of the process. And if you're older and you think that you've heard it all and you've got nothing le left to learn, I would encourage you to open up your mind and continue to go back to Jesus, to continue to go back to Scripture and continue to learn from Him and to change and to grow until you have received, until you've reached your reward. Now, in your notes, you have, over the next few weeks, we've got passages lift, listed out and would love for you to follow along and study the passage during the week and then, you know, we'll come together. Some of you uh, in your small groups will be studying this together as well. There are uh, questions at the back there for reflection and group study. And so I hope that if you're in a small group, that if, if your group is doing it, that you'll take the time and dive in uh, to these passages and we'll talk about it on Sunday. And as always, if you have questions or things that you want to talk about from the passage during the week, I'd always welcome an email or a phone call or a text or something like that because I'd love to, to kick some ideas around with you or answer any questions that you have. Uh, but it's really important for us to understand that if Jesus had to sit at the feet of rabbis, if he had to learn and to grow even as God in the flesh, then how much more do we have to do that as well? So I hope that you'll take the time and dig into it. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for today, and we thank you for this opportunity that we have to, to come together and to study your word, and to worship together, and to fellowship together. And, uh, and so I thank you for bringing all of us here today, whether we're here in the sanctuary or on the live stream. Lord, I pray that we would all just engage with Luke and Acts, that you, as we do that, Lord, that it would be more than just building knowledge in our heads, but it would start to work its way into our hearts, and that through this study, that we become more and more like Jesus. And uh, we just give you praise for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who doesn't leave us alone, who continues to teach us as we seek to grow in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.